Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Zair Yunus and joining me once more uh, is my dear friend, uh, Dr. Iram Sattar. Um, she is the former program director of the Sustainable Water Program at Tufts University. And for those of you who have not watched our previous episodes, I would encourage you to go check them out. They're in the description below. Um, and I invited Dr. Sattar once more uh, on this podcast because there has been an interesting development related to a subject that I first, the first time I met Dr. Sattar was related to this subject. I remember it was in Washington, D.C. There was a conversation about the Indus Waters Treaty or something related to that. Um, and that's how we got introduced. Um, and when India decided to put out a notice to renegotiate or have a conversation about the treaty itself, there was a bit of a hoopla in the media for a short news cycle. But Pakistan being Pakistan right now, a lot of chaos, things moved on. But I figured that it's important for us to dive a bit deeper uh, into this topic and understand from Dr. Sattar, like what's going on, what's needed. Um, so Dr. Iram Sattar, welcome once more to Pakistanomy. I hope you're doing well and thank you for taking out the time. Thank you so much on this beautiful, bright day. And I know you're off to vacation soon. So please have a wonderful holiday. And thank you for having this, you know, important conversation before before you leave. Yeah, and it will come out while I'm on vacation. I'm preempting the schedule here. So, you know, it will be coming out while I'm enjoying my time off. But, you know, we got to keep the YouTube audience happy uh, and not complain. So I want to begin this conversation, Dr. Sitar, with you giving us a 101 of the treaty itself and why was it such a milestone, right? It was signed in Karachi in 1960. Um, I wasn't born at that time. Uh, more than half of the subcontinent wasn't born at that time. People have a sense of it from their Pakistan studies or history courses, but not a lot of deep thought is given in the schedule, in the syllabus uh, about it. So Give us a 101 of this treaty and why was this such a big deal that India and Pakistan, 13 years after independence, essentially signed this treaty to manage the waters of the Indus River? Thank you, Zair. And really, again, thank you for convening a space for this important conversation, because I think we do need, you know, to develop much better understanding of it and systemic understanding. So thank you very much. So just very, very briefly, essentially, this partition, uh, the partition of the subcontinent goes and breaks a combined water system. And what that means is it cuts across a water system that was contiguous and actually went back where the British, while they were ruling the subcontinent, were had constructed a system that, you know, traversed what became an international border. Now, so the water dispute as it is, predates partition. That's the first thing to understand. And it has colonial origins because the fact that the, the irrigation and the way, if you look at the Indus sort of river basin, right, it's this kind of like, that's if I'm holding it up, that's what you can see, right? So it sort of flows in this direction, but it is obviously link linked. The other thing to think about rivers is that rivers actually have no real idea where we draw our political boundaries, right? Rivers are not interested. Rivers are just doing their thing and they're making their way to, in this case, the Arabian Sea, okay? This is what is happening in different, there's outfalls of different rivers into different sort of either oceans or seas. So the river has no idea where we drew our political boundaries. The political boundary was drawn, drawn and the, the dispute predates partition. That's the important thing for us to understand. And essentially, during a standstill agreement that India and Pakistan had at the time of partition, 
that ran out in 1948. So soon after partition, right? Very soon after. And please be mindful at that time that there is massive chaos, right? There is population transfers, there is a refugee crisis, a new country has to be set up. So there is chaos. The and largest mass migration of human beings in history. Right, exactly. And, and with very little resources and announced very quickly, right? So there's not much prep. And that's a lot of the critique of how the British leave the subcontinent, that it's sort of like sprung and here's a date and off you go. And people have to make last minute decisions. So it comes in general chaos at a time of chaos when there's very little systems. 1948, Indian Punjab, this is not the government of India. Indian Punjab cuts off waters to from one canal only into Western Punjab. So Eastern Punjab and Western Punjab. And then there is, again, it's like the specter. And so fear really matters, right? Seeing the Ravi sort of like run dry and seeing, you know, canals running low in Lahore when it's peak planting season in the middle of chaos. I think Pakistan develops a psyche of water insecurity. And that psyche is as, as important as the legal things that we now have. So there is a dispute, standstill, and then other negotiations start happening. Nehru get involved, gets involved. Other things happen. Basically then, this is where Cold War development politics really come in. And the history of US foreign relations in uh, the Indian subcontinent really comes in. America gets involved and the newly minted World Bank wants to take a role in solving this dispute. Okay, And at that time, the president, Eugene Black, comes in. And there's a huge history which is very linked with the history of this country, the US, I mean, which is where you and I are at the moment, which is to do with the Tennessee Valley Authority and David Lilienthal, who was a chairman of it, who gets involved uh, in this Indus waters dispute in the subcontinent. So there is a lot to do with American uh, Cold War history, geopolitics, and trying to figure out if Pakistan can become closer to the U.S. versus going into the orbit of the Soviet Union. Mm. So there's a lot of Cold War development politics of why this happens and why the World Bank gets involved and why the negotiations happen in mostly in DC, right? They don't happen either in, you know, Delhi or Karachi at the time or Islamabad later. And then also it's like, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the geopolitics because Nehru was considered more pro-USSR and the non-line movement was there. Pakistan was being encouraged, as you said, to be part of the US camp. It had, the Muslim League historically had been closer than the Congress party to the British, even pre-partition that's been documented by Dr. Jalal another professor who's based in Boston like yourself. Um, and then, of course, there is the whole Cito Cento conversation that is going on in, in the backdrop of all of these conversations, right? So the U.S. gets involved. I mean, also from my reading of history, and correct me if you view this differently, at this point in time was still seen as a, you know, a better, not a colonial type of power, right? France, England, etc. had all been fighting these colonial games. The U.S. was still viewed as a mediator that could step in and be a lot more um, impartial uh, in these disputes. And so, so the negotiations happen. And then how do they play out and what happens and how do we reach an agreement in 1960? 
Okay, so the last bit of this colonial history, and again, the U.S. point, let me just close that off. Essentially, the point is you're absolutely right. that The U.S. is seen as, uh, in fact, what is interesting is that the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA at the time, is such a model for developing countries, newly becoming independent sovereign nations around the world, that it is hard to overstate. It is rightly being conceived of as the best foreign policy uh, sort of tool or project that anyone could ever have conceived of, right? Because every developing country becoming free at the time said, we want a TVA too. So it's fascinating. Like it's really seen as a as an example of rural uplift and development. It's only later that it gets problematized, but at the time, even somebody like Nehru wants to emulate the TVA. Like everybody's interested in the TVA and everybody wants to recreate it. So the World Bank inserts itself into the process and says, okay, we are offering our so-called good offices. And negotiations then in fact continue for about a decade. So nine years of negotiations, tough negotiations, led by really competent um, engineers. So interestingly, there were, at least from the Pakistani side, there are no lawyers who were involved. And something that David Lilienthal had proposed quite early on in the, in the negotiations, he had said, look, this is such a bad problem that what should happen, because he was playing off the TVA, that India and Pakistan should do joint management of this river basin to fully develop it and for economic development for all. Like that's where we get the most gains. But as soon as the two countries started talking, it became quite clear that there was so much mistrust, especially on the part of Pakistan, that Lilianthal's original idea of let's do joint management of the basin essentially was put to bed, right? And this is the other thing that I think very few people realize. So there was a fight because there was a problem in Pakistan's starting position towards this treaty. What Pakistan wanted was that it wanted to assert its legal rights under international law and international customary law to the rights of the river because it was the downstream user and had always been getting these flows of the river historically, right? So it said that under international law, it had an actual legal claim to these waters. That didn't go far. And this is something that I really think we should urge in a very serious way, because the scholarship on this has still not been done in the World Bank archives. So what that means is the World Bank has uh, made accessible uh, things that it holds, that it deems are World Bank records, right? But what it says are government records of both India and Pakistan, those are still classified. So we cannot access them even while sitting in the World Bank in DC archives. You can't get them. So these conversations must happen. But again, people have really tried today. And I know you always ask for books. And one of the things that I really urge people to do is I was asked by Dawn's Books and Authors to do reviews of two books that are in that are very relevant to this particular thing. So at a minimum, everyone should like go read those big reviews, but then they should pick up these books, right? So one is this fantastic book, which is on the Indus Portals Treaty, which is Legal and Political Dimensions, which is by Ijaz Hussain, who is a former Dean of Social Sciences at Qaidiyaz University in Islamabad. 
So there's very little material from the Pakistani side. But he persevered, he did a lot of work. So one of the things we know is, through all of this, like people have been digging, is that essentially Pakistan wanted to assert its legal rights and it get getting told that, look, you know, good luck, right? You can assert a legal right, but can you realize a legal right, right? And in, in, in America, because there's a lot of this conversation also, there's a difference between paper rights and wet rights, right? So you can have a right on paper, but if you don't actually have any water, you know, like, right? Yeah, you... It's like, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of the poor villagers of the barrier town that got displaced and it's like, well, you do have, right? This is your property, but it's been taken away and good luck going against Malik Riyadh and the Supreme Court that sides with them. What are you going to do at that point in time? Exactly. So it's kind of like the difference between a right on paper and a wet water right in this case, right? So India proposes a plan for the division of the rivers. And this is to date since then, right? This is, you know, 62 odd years now, 63 years. It is to date the only international treaty in the world that divides rivers, not the flow of rivers. And that's a huge difference, right? And that's what makes it particularly unique. So India proposes a plan. And that plan, the original Indian plan, becomes what is known as the World Bank plan. So then the World Bank then starts trying to mediate on that plan between India and Pakistan, right? So the origins of this, I mean, you and I both know the importance of actually, you know, the person who writes the first draft of something. I was literally just thinking that the, the, the analyst or the associate who has the pen on the first draft is actually the most powerful person in in that in that conversation because they can draft and once that anchors people's thoughts, that's it. Right? Then you are just either mitigating or you know you're trying to bind it. That's what's happening. But that's what happened. So this is uh, this is. I mean, we can go back now. I understand it's like decades ago, right? But you have to problematize and you have to look at history with the clear sort of you know eyesight and say look we have to understand what happened where and when because if we don't do that then we keep not having a first draft right and that's a mistake you can keep creating and repeating and again and again and again and that's a problem so then the engineers get involved from the pakistani side also and say okay well now how do we how do we you know like how do we sort of like lessen some of whatever will happen right so the eastern rivers, the three eastern rivers, the Ravi, Bias, and the Satlaj go outright because that's sort of, you know, we can easily take it. And then the rest of the fight is on the three western rivers, the Indus, the Jhelum, and the Chinnab, right, which are the so-called western rivers and come to Pakistan. Of this, the only real problem for the most part is the Jhelum and the Chinnab, which is where we get to the disputes even today. Because if you go back and look at the treaty, it is fascinating. India is allowed to uh, construct what are thought of as run of the river, uh, sort of hydroelectric projects, also use them for domestic purposes, other sort of household uses, etc. Right. So India is allowed uses on the Western rivers, and the treaty doesn't cut that off. So there's so the, all of the rest of what happens for the nine years, and if you read, sit down and read this treaty, right, it is very detailed. It has specific articles, clauses, 
annexes that refer back and forth to each other. So it's an actual complex document. But it's starting off from the starting assumption that basically both countries, mostly Pakistan is affected by this, right? Because as a lower riparian, we sign off any legal right that we, that, you know, anything we've agreed in this treaty is something that we basically, you know, what's agreed in this treaty is what we have claims under the terms of this treaty, but we do not have any legal rights to any of the rest of it. Now, as you know, at the time, there is a huge pushback in Pakistan, right? Because Sindh is the lower riparian, uh, there is one unit at the time, which has been made for very different political reasons, but that really affects internal water sharing and dynamics within Pakistan when this treaty is agreed. So this treaty is, I have a very conflicted sort of relationship with it because I can go in and see all of what was wrong and how it came about. And yet I think for what it's worth and for where it's managed to keep the peace, it's a perfectly reasonable international document. Like I can see that because if you're realistic, you think, you know, you, you take, you know, what you can get and then you try and be the most impactful and effective at it. So that's sort of like. So one of the things as I was doing some background reading um, most recently, right, in the recent coverage that happened is that, well, Pakistan through the Western rivers gets the majority of the flows coming in in any case. Um, and I would love your thoughts on how you see that point that is made. Um, and then the second one, of course, is, you know, we see this in between Sindh and Punjab to this day, right? Oh, if Kalabagh Dam becomes a dam, that kind of logic. We've talked about this before. And the this population in Sindh does not really like that. And I know why, because I have friends who live near Tata and they literally have seen their lands go from being fertile to being saline because of the lack of flow coming in. So... That point about the majority of water still coming into Pakistan and it's not a, you know, that this is, you know, you said you have a conflicted relationship. My view is in, in any agreement, if both sides are kind of unhappy, that means you have the right kind of balance and compromise. Um, overall, do you think this is a, a global success treaty in terms of the context of partition, the animosity that still lingers and the fact that, you know, India and Pakistan have gone to war multiple times, but they have not gone to war over access to water. And I see that as a testament to the success of this treaty. Would you agree with that? So I want to say, let me let me actually sort of say yes, but then say that what I would like to do is do a small qualified yes, if that makes sense, right? Because I think that there is a lot that this treaty doesn't touch. And this is again a failure of not being able to come up with the first draft of where it can go, right? Which is where when we sort of like come to like this present moment and how we landed here, right? It's like a lead up and a build up. So, okay, so on the point of yes, Pakistan gets most of the water from the rivers, that is correct. That's how it's set up with India being able to do some limited development on the Western rivers also that are so-called Pakistan's rivers, right? And what is fascinating is, and this is where I would really like people to also pick up something, which is another book, which is fascinating also. It, it, this is written by a practitioner, not an academic, who was 
uh, federal secretary of the then water and power uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, ministry, okay? This is this particular book, okay? It was written by Ashfaq Mahmood. It's called Hydro Diplomacy, okay? And it's an excellent book, and I really recommend it. Preventing Water War Between Nuclear-Armed Pakistan and India. Again, an ex-practitioner who's really dug into things. So, yes, it has really, um, it has really, and again, I've done a book review of this, so it should be easy for people to find. So, absolutely, I think it has held, and it has helped the peace. One of the things that Ashwak Mahmood catalogs in his book is, which I find fascinating, he says that, look, <clears throat> in the first 1960s, until the first uh, <clears throat> dispute or the first sort of differences reached the level of like an international dispute settlement mechanism, which means it comes out of the permanent Indus commissioners, uh, you know, which is your, which is the permanent body commissioner from each side, as jointly known as the PIC, the Permanent Indus Commission, okay? So as he explains and as he catalogs, which is absolutely fascinating, and I want to get these uh, these numbers right, he says, look, in the first decades from 1960 when the treaty was signed, essentially, which includes another dispute that was solved at the PIC level, we won't go into that, India built about 43 uh, hard infrastructure projects on the Western rivers. And nothing much in Pakistan happened, okay? Now, they could be of different sizes. Uh, they affect, they may have affected flow regimes, uh, right? They changed the channel dynamics, etc. But essentially, for several decades after this uh, treaty was signed and from the 1960s, India did build a lot of things on the Western rivers. And then things change because the size and the scope and the scale of the projects changes, right? And we can catalog that also. But yes, Pakistan gets most of the water. And that is true. But it's almost as if what Pakistan did while signing or agreeing to the treaty is that that was its prior position in, in international law and in customary international law to begin with, right? It was as a lower riparian entitled to these waters. So it's not like it's some like some great you know, like, oh, thank you. It's not a great gift, okay? It's something that you are owed. Now, whether you can realize it or not is 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 the problem. The other thing is, is and just to address your friends who lands have sort of gone, right, Baron? One of the things that is a result of this and why uh, lower riparian sin and people in it in particular are, are, you know, are still lament the signing of this treaty is that what happens is that to supplement the water from the three eastern rivers that is now diverted towards India, right? A lot of water is taken out of the Indus main stem and taken to irrigate lands in Punjab, in specifically to the east, where they were developed, but they used to rely on this other water source. Now, that water that used to go down, right, into Sin. And importantly, which is something that we now understand, in terms of the delta is coming in, sea level is encroaching because there is less fresh water flow into that, into those lands, right? So there is land sort of erosion, but there's also saltwater intrusion. So there's a huge set of engineering that had to be done to make this treaty workable. And as far as I understand, Pakistan agreed because the money came on the table. In then dollars, it was about a billion dollars. 
so we're talking us waqt se hi jo hai wo dollars ki game chal rahi hai but there it's a negotiated and there are a number of countries and again the cold war nexus has a lot to do with it right like countries like australia even pitch in some money okay to make this agreement work okay because you know they come up with a, as i'm saying it's approximately a billion it's pretty close to that so so the point is that because the money comes because otherwise right if you divert these three eastern rivers and then you have like no way to take the indus water to this side right without link canals and stuff right which is why the dispute keeps happening about the link canals right because everybody keeps saying sin keeps saying don't run the link canals every time you run the link canals that affects what we are you know what we get so so this is a problem and the delta meanwhile is suffering so it's it's again it's like a lot more complex but yet hopefully easy to understand then people normally give it you know and i think like overall like now that you explain it this way right a lot of the you mentioned there was a one unit at that time ayub obviously was in the picture around that time the geopolitics we touched upon at that time we touched upon we didn't touch upon and i think that's what i wanted to raise was the historical sort of issue that we now understand in pakistani politics between everybody else and the punjab makes sense with the link canals as you were explaining it that continues to this day um and again with the floods the catastrophic floods that just happened the discourse in pakistan was all about building more dams and if you talk to the people of sindh at least the ones that i spoke to many of whose lands were under water said no 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 wait a minute do not use our devastation as an excuse to build more dams up river because that's not what caused the floods and you're going to build more of these to take water for your own lands upstream and we're going to have more of the problem and i think that again it's it's great that you explained it that way because a lot of people don't understand that all of these things are connected in that sense right pakistan's original sin of not allowing a thriving democracy and inclusive democracy led to some of these decisions even in terms of how the water and the infrastructure for that water was developed post the 1960 treaty and oh by the way there's a geopolitical runs which is what we were laughing about just a moment ago so it's it's just i don't know i mean it, it's wonderful that's why i love history because you kind of get to get a better sense of why things are the way they are across the board and it sort of links back up i want to switch to today india sort of now saying we've given a notice we want to talk about this treaty um what's going on with that what's the what's your uh, insight into why they're demanding it of course from what i read there are issues related to climate change there are things that they want to do with population that has increased etc cetera, etc cetera. how do you see the current sort of request coming in from the indian side to say wait we need to talk about this issue again okay so i think what we should do is essentially fold that in with what i think pakistan which i mean this may sound super critical but i think it's important to you know be like you know tell your truth right i mean this is how i see it i think the problem is that pakistan and the permanent indus commission especially on the pakistani side has not been activated and elevated in the way in which it needs to have okay and it's it's treated and let me again anecdotes are i think helpful and you know they only tell part of a story 
But while I was doing my uh, research, I was at the Permanent Indus Commission. This is in Lahore. And I promise you that, that if you ever go in and visit these offices and if you look at uh, the systems they have in place, even sort of like, I mean, I am I kid you not, okay, touch everything, cross everything. I think we probably have a sort of better technology in our home offices, okay? I'm, I'm not, I do not think that that's an exaggeration, okay? Um, and I had the assistant commissioners basically say to me over, you know, a conversation, very detailed, project by project, several hours, right? Explain to me what is happening, right? What is the dispute? And I, I people were saying to me at the end that we wish, like, you know, you have like a lament. And so they said, you know, we wish that our ministry, and, you know, in this case, there's multiple ministries involved, but our ministry would talk to us the way you have talked to us today to really understand these issues and then to try and see, you know, evolve the best, you know, way forward. And I think that's a real tragedy. And I think we are in the bind we are in because we have not really invested in the skill development, the capacity development. And this is a lament of mine because I study bureaucracies and I study institutions and I feel really traumatized when I look at the state of water governance institutions within Pakistan. And I think that that's a huge uh, disservice to its, to, to, you know, the whole country and its, its future. And again, it's fascinating to go back to Ashwak Mahmood's book. I mean, one of the things that he writes about, again, as a practitioner, as an insider, right? He says, look, after the Bakhlihar dispute resolution has happened and the Kishim Ganga award has come, essentially there is all of the technical issues and the, the technological, right, the, the specific project specific issues, the, we have enough guidance from, from the international sort of fora. And the PIC is now enabled and quite competent between the two countries to take the rest of these projects forward in a way that will protect, you know, our rights, right? He really thinks so. And what he thinks should happen is, and I think that that's right. So this is what is left out, okay? So the treaty sort of, right? So there's no sort of um, inclusion or consideration of what will happen to groundwater. Now, a lot of treaties signed at the time, absolutely there was no understanding of the fact, you know, that groundwater, the aquifer is connected and base flow of rivers is, you know, has an impact on groundwater, et cetera, right? So, it doesn't touch groundwater. It doesn't touch environmental flows of either what happens into the Eastern River, right, uh, sort of basin, which is why if you talk about it in in, um, in 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 Lahore, it's called either the old or the Buddha Ravi River or the Kala, which is Black Ravi, right? That's because there is no flow into that, river basin, right? So, no, so there development fully modernize Right, and that may then get diverted from somewhere else. It's kind of like, you know, where you have to then divert it from somewhere, but the entire stream bred because of the diversion that has happened to India, right, has, has gone. So there is huge environmental degradation there. Now, obviously, some flow still happens because India can't stop 100% of it. 
And as I understand it, it will not be able to either. But that, that's a different discussion. The problem is that the treaty doesn't account for environmental flows. Neither does it account for the environmental flows from the Western rivers. And this is why the Kishanganga final award from the Court of Arbitration, this is the first um, sort of decision that was given by a Court of Arbitration from 1960 to 2013, right? Nothing, no dispute had ever been taken, okay? And then the sort of the Court of Arbitration gives its final decisions. One of the things that it talks about, it looks at the environmental flows even of the Western rivers, right? So the treaty doesn't touch that. So for my mind, what should happen in this treaty, right? Even if you say, let me keep the substance of this as is, but yes, are there places to improve it? Absolutely, right? Can the shortage sharing formula, by what What I mean by that is in, supposing there are lower flows than you expect in any given year, and this does happen, and it'll happen more and more. It happens more in El Nino years, okay? So the more that happens, is there a way that both countries can equitably share, you know, the waters available? Because the Court of Arbitration in the Kishanganga sort of decision, it's fascinating. One of the things it says, and this is why, you know, it's the interlinkages between things that you really have to see, right? It specifically says that Pakistan within the country, like, okay, essentially what it's saying is, we understand that environmental flows are very important, especially because, uh, you know, in winter months, the flow is low, right? Most of the bulk is in, in the summer monsoon okay but even then uh you know india should be getting a certain amount of water uh in the river that it can use even at a time of low flow and here's a throwaway line now it's not dispositive of anything but it's throwaway line and if anybody thinks that international law and what you do in your domestic jurisdiction are not interlinked they are asleep they are not really looking Arbitrators are very aware people. They know what's happening. They know what you are doing within your country. So it basically says, we know that yes, environment is very important, but we also think economic development is very important. And we're going to give India this, you know, right to this water. And we also know that Pakistan is actually not all that good at uh, environmental management, okay, within Pakistan. Now, this obviously comes as no shock to anybody who studies you know, the intra-provincial aspects or, you know, the sub-local aspects of Pakistani water governance, right? People know this. But even the arbitrators in Kishan Ganga in the final award say, well, Pakistan's really bad at environmental governance in the country. It's almost like, well, you know, then you don't have the moral authority to speak, right? I mean, it's kind of like if I if I've never exhibited any morals upstanding on an issue and then I want to claim my rights, they're like, well, you know, they're not buying it. It's fascinating to read it. Now, since that award came out in 2013, right? Like I'm maybe like, I think everyone should be like responsible, right? If somebody critiques me like that, I promise you, if I would have read that award in 2013, I would have thought, oh my God. Okay, I haven't done it. I acknowledge, you know, bad. I've been doing whatever. I can make a thousand excuses we're still a decade, right, after that award comes out. Has the PIC or have our internal mechanisms developed since then? 
10 years is a long time in the history of like a human being as well as a nation, okay? A decade is a long time. So why hasn't Pakistan said, let us now develop great environmental governance and that will be something that we can point to even in international fora. It's kind of like India coming up with the first draft of what becomes the IWT, right? The treaty, like why can't Pakistan come up with what the next phase vision if this is going to be worked out, and again, it can only be done in consensus, what will we want to include? Like what are our aspirational asks, right? We want better environmental governance. We want more say for the rights of local communities, right? Which also empowers, and this is by the way, it gets total into geopolitics, okay? Pakistan claims a right to Kashmir, which India has now abrogated and made it union territories, right? And divided it up. But if Pakistan takes a principled stance on water governance, what it also does is it empowers local Kashmiris living in the high mountain areas, saying, of course, we should have a right to say how many projects you, India, build on all of the Chinab tributaries, for instance, right? And you are going to affect our local ecologies, our agriculture is going to be destroyed, etc. Then Pakistan has, it's like a moral authority. Yeah. To, to stand with people because you, guess what? You do it in your own domain and you give that power and that right to your own people. So there's so many things that we should, I think, be doing. But currently, that vision of being able to say, okay, look, we need, you know, we need to think about pollution issues, right? As I said, we need to look at groundwater. We need to look at industrial dumping. You name it, right? Everything that we know since 1960 now, the impacts of climate change. I was just reading something. This is this is fascinating. A report just came out about how, uh, you know, the sort of like the okay. So about fifty percent of the glaciers by the turn of the century are likely to have disappeared and will have melted. That's even if we cut emissions today, half the glacial water will be gone. Right now, that creates the risk for what are these glacial lakes. And there's a new paper that comes out that says there's several countries, four in particular, Pakistan is at the top of that list because it has the most glaciers outside of the polar zones. So Pakistan, at, because of global warming and climate change, is most affected in the high altitudes. And what they're saying is these will be like, the way to think about these is, is internal uh, tsunamis. Okay, so the tsunami is not coming from the ocean. Your tsunami is coming from the, you know, like internally, right? The glacial bursts that we hear of, yeah. So they're saying that if we we documented, right? So the paper sort of documents about 20 odd glacial bursts just last year, different sizes and scopes, but there's nothing to say once um, warming accelerates that these will not really burst. Now, I think everyone is keeping up with the disaster of the earthquake right now, right? That's a huge calamity. It's 20 odd thousand people are dead, countless injuries, live lost, disaster, right? So these internal disasters that could be created, what they're saying is the paper is saying, look, about 15 million people could be at risk. So 20,000, 15, supposing it's a million, like really, you know, like bring it down by a lot. But that's a huge crisis. So there's a lot that could be done in terms of, what to do with this treaty and Pakistan just as a good moral actor should 
put out its vision statement, right? Rather than waiting for now, I mean, as you're saying, right, we are reading reports in the news. And again, I want to be really clear. I have not read this so-called notice, right? It is not available in the public domain. And I hope that that's one of the things that is done. Notices like this, bring in more researchers, bring in academia, bring in professionals, bring in all of Pakistan's intelligentsia. I'm sure people are on Twitter all the time, right? Why aren't people talking about existential issues and researching this, right? And talking back and forth. Even if you look at the reporting about this uh, so-called notice, right? I want to say it's about 95 of the sources out of 100 that you will see will be from Indian sources and Indian reports, right? Of what the notice is and what it says. And in the Pakistani media, it's sort of as if it's not reported at all, or it's so marginal that it's like 95 to one. Or it's like, it's whenever it is even covered, like, you know, on social media or whatever conversations that have popped up. This is my other issue is that, oh, this is yet another sazish by India to undermine Pakistan. I'm like, Maybe, maybe not. Please disclose it and let's have a broader, as you said, a vision statement, a conversation about what works under it, what doesn't. Let's have an, let's be adults about this and deal with it in a way that goes beyond this conspiracy theory mindset, right? I mean, again, as you said, if the situation right after partition was that, yes, you have the right to something, but can you really enforce that? Not really, because India is a larger power. You're struggling economically, politically, blah, blah, blah. You agree to the best case scenario, which largely, as we talked about, held form during, you know, 60 odd years. Even right now, Pakistan is struggling on the brink of bankruptcy and de default. And there's not much it can do from a diplomatic soft power, hard power point of view to force and coerce India. So then the moral authority or the fact that you're good actors domestically, you want to engage with the climate change community. You want to talk about these risks that everybody's flagging that Pakistan has. You know, this is the thing to me. Like, I remember the point that you made about the PIC. That's the point you made years ago when I first met you. And, you know, in that period, we heard about Pakistan being the most vulnerable countries from climate change. And, oh, by the way, we're an agri agrarian society with 40% of labor and agriculture. And I'm like, then that's a national security risk that your PIC is not equipped to do its job like i see it as that but somehow it gets missed and i think that's the most frustrating part is um that consistently you see across institutions on areas that need professional management bureaucratic handling delicate balances like we just ignore until the crisis comes and then everybody wakes up and we're like oh ye kaise ho gaya? Ab kya kare? and i'm like come on guys and if you if you go to some of these offices, and this is like beyond, right? This is in the broader sort of whole irrigation community, right? What people take out from like, you know, their desk drawers, okay, are like the the you know, the manual of like this is what we're supposed to follow. And you're actually, I'm I kid you not, you just like want to pull each hair out, like one by one, very slowly. You're like I'm like, bhai, ye manual chat GPT pe upload karo, bata dega usko train kar do is manual ke AI can tell you now what, what you're supposed to do. Is I and I'm not saying that take international commitments lightly, right? So the treaty is a document, and Pakistan has international obligations under international law under it, and absolutely uh, do what it requires. Okay, so it requires the PIC to be this, 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 and defines it quite clearly. It says this and what will happen. Wonderful. Nobody's saying don't do that. 
But you know what it doesn't do? Is that it doesn't tell you that if I'm telling you the PIC has to be these 10 things, that the PIC cannot be these 90 other things either. And it cannot be linked to your domestic governance institutions better and to your academia. So it sits in an ecosystem which is trying to do knowledge production. So it doesn't make any sense to say the treaty certainly obligates you to do X, but doesn't bind you from doing X plus. Okay, so there's a huge number of things that you can be doing and that's what we have not done in a serious way. So now we're sitting here where the reporting tells us that India has you know, issued a notice, okay? Now what's fascinating about this is that this was also a dispute that flows out of the way that the treaty is structured. It has a dispute settlement uh, sort of article and mechanism laid out, right? And, you know, most things, I mean, it is assumed, and again, that's how it functioned for decades, right? Go to the PIC, get worked out there. Insiders, reputable insiders, like Ashwak Vemut thinks that, you know, after, uh, think that after Bahnihar and Kishanganga, basically the PIC can do a lot of the rest of the work. Right? It doesn't need to, it's, it doesn't need to. However, there's this question, and this is what India is putting out, right? Now, just to be clear, what the treaty allows is for is the treaty allows itself to be renegotiated. There's no bars on that, right? All treaties will do that. This one certainly does it, it's very careful. But it can only be done with the mutual agreement of both governments, right? So it can't be that I want to, like one government wants to do it or one PIC, half of it wants to do something. It can't do it. The PIC has to act through its post-government, right? And both governments have to agree. Then that's a whole other process of a new set of negotiations that have to open up, right? So a unilateral sort of like, I, I don't even know whether to call it a notice. So I keep calling it a so-called notice, right? It's like a unilateral notice of some kind that says, negotiate in 90 days. What's interesting and weird about that is that I can't find that language anywhere in the treaty when I read it, okay? I, I don't see this 90 days. I just don't see what this notice is. But that doesn't mean the treaty cannot be negoti renegotiated with mutual agreement. Of course it can. There's and no again, it's to your point about the fact that, you know, there is a notice and perhaps there is an interpretation on the Indian side about 90 days and they're claiming that, but the Pakistanis may disagree. But the starting point for that is to disclose the notice at least and then point out what has been invoked and how. And then researchers like yourselves and others who are neck deep into this stuff can get their hands dirty and support the government and the state like respond to it in a proper way but i think at this point in time pakistani society is engulfed in so many different storms that this one is and i think i mean again if i were to you know a part of me may say oh the indians are you know being being a bit coy about it but then i'm like if i'm indian i would do exactly this as well because i kind of know that the other side is you know facing a barrage of issues and i'll insert something i want to do in this and put my own you know interpretation on things and I know the other side is either not capable of handling this right now or doesn't have the capacity. And so on we move on. Um, and I think that's the challenge. That's why I wanted to have this conversation with you is like have more people understand that this is a very important issue, um, that it is not getting the right type of attention within Pakistan that people should talk about. And also that 
this does not have to be yet another India-Pakistan dispute. This is a treaty that both countries sign and has held firm for the majority through wars, through thick and thin, it has held firm. And it has benefited both countries and the people of both countries and of the Indian subcontinent. And it would be a shame that at a time like this, that you know, this would be just one more uh, set of issues among so many issues between India and Pakistan uh, that are currently on the table. I'm like, there's a way to resolve it, but at least starting point for that is acknowledging and paying attention to it. So I'm glad that, yeah. Oh, sorry. Just I was just going to say, so two things that we just, if we can just touch upon very, very quickly. One is your point about where you were talking about the floods. These particular floods were what are called atmospheric rivers, right? This particular flood was an atmospheric river. If you remember, this is what happened over Houston, right? It's a rainfall event. It's not a river flood. So the, with the climate changing, the solution, I mean, there is no solution for an atmospheric river flood. Right. There's no dam you could make to capture that water. That's just not how it works. So that's just such a fundamental misunderstanding of what was causing these particular floods, which is ridiculous. But the other thing about the so-called notice and the reporting about this particular notice, right, that's being put out, which is a problem. And this is where, as you're saying, in the general cacophony or whatever is or is not happening, you know, the chaos in Pakistan, right, what may get missed is. What India has, the interpretation it is putting out, right, it is saying, if you don't act in 90 days to open up negotiations, we will treat this as, and we will treat your actions as a material breach of the treaty. Uzair, if I were like a Pakistani decision maker, this would make me sit up and take very serious notice, and I would want to rebut it very seriously, right? Because Claiming a material breach of an international agreement is not nothing. It's quite serious. And, and that is certainly Pakistan. That is certainly something Pakistan should be very intent on dispelling. 90 days is nothing. Okay. One, I don't see it. But to say that thus it's a material breach is very serious. So instead of Pakistan having taken that higher moral ground and saying, you, India, are the one who is doing the material breach by not giving us environmental flows and, you know, we should be more elevated or whatever it would have wanted to claim, justified or not. This is literally the other way around. And that is, uh, it's like sort of like it's a, it places you in a tenuous position. So we have something from the attorney general's office saying, you know, these media reports should be disregarded because the court of arbitration is working. That is correct. But again, if you sit down and read the treaty, what is fascinating is that India has boycotted the court of arbitration proceedings. It is only going ahead by presentations in front of the neutral expert. Okay, so the court of arbitration has also to work in consensus and that both sides have to appoint people, neutral people have to be agreed. So if one side boycotts a proceeding because international law there is no sovereign who can compel you to come, right? The state can get you before a court and you have to comply. You have very, right, it can arrest you, it can do. But in international law, there is no sovereign to enforce. It is by mutual consent. So that India is not participating. So if you look at what the World Bank did, it paused the dispute resolution mechanism for close to a little over five years, okay? And it did that and had multiple meetings convened with the secretaries on both sides to sit 
down and try and say if they could agree on one venue, the neutral expert or the court of arbitration. And the two parties did not agree. So finally, the World Bank, in its neutral role, said, okay, we will let both processes start. And we now, and it says it with very clear, it acknowledges it, right? That look, the problem is that if you start potentially uh, overlapping, competing legal sort of, you know, sort of processes, it could be that you could get conflicting judgments. So we understand the problem, but after five years of failing, of bringing these people together, we give up and otherwise the treaty is also at risk because it's not functional. So it's, it's, it's at a very low point because India is claiming that you're in material breach because you didn't go step by step, PIC to neutral expert to the court of arbitration. I'm not sure that such a hierarchy necessarily exists because this has been debated ad nauseum, obviously, at the PIC level and with the World Bank involvement. But could Pakistan have also agreed to a neutral expert? Sure, right? But it did not. Like, it did to begin with, and then it went to the court of arbitration. And if you think about it, I mean, I can see why they may be, and again, this is just conjecture, because they didn't get a good judgment from what they thought was the Bahlihar neutral expert, this, you know, the famous Swiss engineer Raymond Defeat, right? That didn't happen. So they think that the court of arbitration can do both legal issues and technical issues. So they want that. They prefer that, even though they first agreed to the neutral expert. But in all of this back and forth legal strategy, we didn't get the benefits from Kishan Ganga that we could have. And uh, we find ourselves at a very dangerous, tenuous uh, sort of point because as the lower riparian, we certainly need this treaty to be persevere. But if India is boycotting the court of arbitration proceeding, then it's very hard, right? It's very hard for someone, a court, to like order an ex parte judgment. Even if it does, right, what will we actually get out of it? So... I think a lot of cooler heads have to prevail. Less securitization of water. If I can just sort of sum it up like that, I think this is critical. We have done it too long in a way that has gotten us into this particular bind. And every time something happens, like Uri happened, and then Modi's blood and water speech happened, we, you know, they, up, like the ante keeps getting up. We have to take water out of this it is actually you know too important to be left in this way where it is if people's lives and livelihoods are are linked to this and we have to take it more seriously no i couldn't agree more and i think that's the right point to wrap up this conversation and again like so many more recent conversations yet one more issue that demands seriousness in islamabad um, where Islamabad and the ruling class is really falling short. Um, and again, it, it's it's my, my whole thesis that, you know, Pakistan's sleepwalking into disaster. This is just one more of those things, a, a thing that, you know, is technical in nature, so we don't really pay attention to it on a daily basis, like inflation or the exchange rate or the debt or IMF. But as you've explained so brilliantly over the last hour, it is a huge issue. And guess what? 
It's going to get worse because of climate change. It's going to get worse because of India's own developmental needs. It's upstream. Um, and it's going to get worse. Also, and we didn't touch a lot about it, but we've touched about this in previous podcasts that I've had you on, population growth in Pakistan. Um, all of these things are stressing the country, the geographic boundaries or the people that live in within those geographic boundaries. And the ruling class has continued to fall short of uh, recognizing all of these issues and doing something about it. And I think that really is the is the culminating point for even this conversation, like many others, is people need to wake the hell up and get out of their own petty differences internally first before, as you said, we can you know have less securitization of water, et cetera, et cetera. So Dr. Sitar, thank you so much for enlightening us with this and for educating our audience on this topic. And we'll keep an eye on and see what comes next, right? With the 90 day period, et cetera and maybe have you back on in terms of what comes next uh, once we have more clarity at least on what is it that, you know, once the 90 days are over, what do the Indians claim? So we'll keep an eye on. So thank you so much and have a good rest of the day. Thank you, sir. Thank you so